Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as members sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Vasiliga, and I am the director of the section of clinical specialists and scientists here at ASHP, and I'll be your host. With me today is Kim Benner from Stanford University, Children's of Alabama, Morgan Taylor from Gar- Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital, Kyle Mays from Cardinal Glennon's Children's Hospital, and Rachel Myers from Rutger University and St. Barnabas Medical Center. Dr. Benner's, Benner's practice is the pediatric pulmonology. Dr. Taylor works in a per- pediatric emergency medicine, and Drs. Mays and Myers work in the pediatric intensive care units. Thanks for joining us today, all. So let's get started talking about today's topic, sepsis in the pediatric population. So Kim and Rachel, can you kick it off by telling us a little bit about some of the key points from the new surviving sepsis guideline in pediatrics? Sure. Thank you, Vicki. In February of 2020, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies released the practice guidelines for children with septic shock and other sepsis organ dysfunction. Um, So the guidelines were instructed by a panel of experts, and they developed a consensus of recommendation to provide the best care for these children. Many of the recommendations were made based on like a low quality evidence due to the paucity of data. However, these guidelines can really provide a great foundation for our critical patient population upon which to build consistent care to provide improved outcomes and, of course, research in the future. So the new guidelines, in a nutshell, talk about some steps of therapy, and they can be summarized by obtaining IV or IO access, collecting blood cultures, starting empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics, measuring lactate levels, and then administering fluid boluses if shock is present and starting vasoactive agents if shock persists. And we're going to be breaking down all these topics in this discussion. Some other areas that the new surviving sepsis guidelines touch on are that, that are important for pharmacists are the awareness and importance of antibiotic timing, the choice of vasopressor, and fluids, including volume and type of fluid. We're going to be going into depth on all of these topics during this discussion. Perfect. Thanks so much for that summary, Kim and Rachel. So let's dig into some of those points a little bit deeper. Kyle, can you expand for us on the choices of vasopressors for pediatric sepsis? Yeah, of course. So with this recommendation and update uh, for the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, um, they made a couple recommendations that are a little bit different than previous versions. The biggest change has been the recommendation of using epinephrine or norepinephrine in patients with septic shock over dopamine. Historically, dopamine has been a go-to drug for a lot of uh, ICUs and emergency departments because of it being readily available in a premix formulation. However, what we are seeing is um, a, a body of evidence, weak but still there, suggesting that epinephrine and norepinephrine provide our patients with better outcomes. One issue that they were not able to fully resolve with uh, the recommendation, though, is that they don't have a specific choice of either epinephrine or norepinephrine. So it really comes down to the clinician preference, individual patient physiology, as well as like local system factors. In general, for us to kind of simplify it, 
We tend to choose epinephrine for our patients presenting in a cold shock and norepinephrine for our patients presenting with a warm shock. Again, that's very simplified version of how we kind of utilize our drugs. But again, that's how we utilize it at Cardinal Glennon. Um, every different facility is uh, recommended to kind of choose that agent that works best for you. And again, dopamine is still going to be present. Um, it's going to be hard to get away from dopamine being that it is a premixed agent that sits nice and conveniently in our crash carts. But again, the idea is if you don't have norepinephrine and epinephrine readily available, start off with your dopamine and then transition when you're able to, to those uh, preferred agents. Lots to think about. Um, I think something that a lot of practitioners worry about is antibiotic timing. Kyle and Morgan, can you explain the timing that the surviving sepsis, surviving sepsis guidelines advise and how pharmacists can help hospitals meet those goals? Sure, I can hop in on this one. What's new with these guidelines is they actually gave us two timelines to follow for our antibiotic administration. Either way, the good news is we still know that the earlier we can identify sepsis and administer our antibiotics, we still have that decrease in mortality for our patients. So for that reason, the guidelines still make a recommendation to administer antibiotics within an hour for those patients that have what's called septic shock. So shock meaning they've got severe infection, which led, led to some sort of cardiovascular dysfunction, meaning hypotension, need for vasoactive meds, or impaired perfusion. And what's important to point out here is that one-hour timeline really needs to consider initiating your bundle, right? So including your antibiotic and fluid bolus to really see that mortality benefit. Where they switched things up a bit is they also added this second three-hour timeline, and this is more for your suspected sepsis, if you will. So patients that are not actually in shock, but they have a sepsis-associated organ dysfunction, so still have some sort of severe infection that's leading cardi to cardiovascular or non-cardiovascular organ dysfunction. And in those patients, it's recommended that we can start therapy as soon as we get an appropriate evaluation and up to three hours after we recognize it. So they've kind of extended this timeline to allow practitioners to truly evaluate the patient and say, okay, is this something septic that I need to treat promptly or do I have a minute to kind of sit back and look at my labs that are coming back and see how the patient progresses for a minute? Um, and I think this is great because it can hopefully avoid inappropriate antibiotic use in a certain subset of patients that meet this criteria. The other part that's kind of controversial is when we're looking at, so when does the clock start ticking for these patients? So like, when is my one hour met? And I think for the most part, the jury's still out on that. And the guidelines are pretty pretty vague. They just say as soon as you recognize it. So for most of us, I think in our institutions, we try to recognize it as promptly as we can. So at Cardinal Glennon, for us, that's usually trying to identify it in triage with our nurses. But I think the jury's still out on the exact timeline for when that time clock starts. But ideally, as soon as you can recognize it and the faster you can recognize it, the more mortality benefit you can have with that, especially with that one-hour bundle. Yeah, and to hop on what Morgan was saying, one of the ways that pharmacists can kind of help make sure that we are achieving these goals um, on a hospital uh, level is 
developing uh, programs or tools that our practitioners can use to kind of facilitate this process for identifying patients that are currently experiencing shock or at risk of developing shock within like within one hour or so of presentation, if you will. What we can do is to create programs such as something that we've developed that we've called code sepsis. This is essentially a process that gets everybody on the multidisciplinary team involved in managing our patients that come in suspected of having sepsis or actively in shock. So what this process looks like is our triage nurses will go ahead and alert the team that they have a potential patient experiencing shock or is at risk of shock. We page out to our team members, including pharmacy, the physicians, uh, respiratory therapy, and additional staff as needed. For the pharmacy crew, this sends us an alert um, down in the pharmacy that says that we have a patient at risk or is experiencing sepsis. That alerts us to the fact that we need to get these antibiotics to these patients quicker. For us, we evaluated a couple different options for how to meet this measurement for getting patients antibiotics sooner than later. A couple of the ideas that we had tossed around initially were to develop premixed bags of antibiotics that would fit patient weight ranges. So if the patient was between like 10 and 20 kilograms, we would have a antibiotic already made in the refrigerator ready for them to administer. However, that tended to be a little bit more problematic um, in the long run. Uh, what we ended up deciding on was, again, sending that page and then pharmacy would act quickly, more or less. We would compound the medication and then we would call to say that we were tubing the medication or we would deliver it to ourselves uh, down to the ED to make sure that the antibiotic was delivered to the patient in a timely fashion. Reviewing historically our time to getting medications to the bedside, we were always fairly quick, but this was a way for us to ensure that we were getting those antibiotics to our patients um, in a timely fashion. I've also heard of other options being available really kind of just takes your team to explore what options work best within your institution. For us, the code sepsis process was um, a hit and seems to be working very well, but that might not be the best option for every institution. So again, really what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is digging down into is working with your institution to develop a process that expedites antibiotics for your patients, as well as making sure that there's a process in place that expedites that antibiotic order process, compounding process, and delivering process. I do have a quick question for you based on your experience at your institution. Um, did you consider the use of an antibiogram when you were choosing your antimicrobials? Yeah, we actually did um, consider antibiogram just because I think the recommendations that we would come up with tend to be a little bit different than maybe what other institutions might utilize. A perfect example is maybe that first agent that we can use for anybody that is at risk for pseudomonas. We have good coverage with ceftazidime, for example, but other institutions might not have a great coverage with ceftazidime as maybe using it as an empiric option. Other uh, facilities might use cefepime or they might prefer and tazobactam. So we did look at our antibiogram to come up with a couple of options. Again, our go-to is going to be ceftriaxone. That's going to be kind of our workhorse. But then as we start to go down 
them and look deeper at our patients. So are they coming with a history of multi-drug resistant organisms? Are they immunocompromised? Do they have a history of long-standing line infections? All those kind of go into protocol as well as kind of our order sets that kind of dictate what uh, antibiotics we're going to be using for the different patients. So that is all built into our electronic medical health record, which makes it convenient at the um, order entry for our physicians. We try to make everything as easy as possible for our physician colleagues. <laughs> so, Morgan, um, Kyle mentioned immunocompromised patients. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about antibiotics for that patient population and how should these patients be treated differently? I think one of the most important problems and a lot of institutions face, and specifically ours, is properly identifying your immunocompromised patients so then you can know what to look for as far as antibiotics go. So having your triage and screening criteria set up as such that you can identify them from the get-go is huge. So that would be patients that have malignancy, so hemoc cancer, or transplant patients, so those with bone marrow transplant, heart, lung, kidney, all of those. And then one patient population that we sometimes forget, and they are also on pretty immunosuppressive therapy. It's like those patients that have lupus or Crohn's or anyone that could also be on chronic steroids. Those are all patients that we really want to identify as being at risk for having some sort of immunocompromise happen. And just like Kyle was saying, for those patients, it's important that we don't just arbitrarily throw on ceftriaxone because it's what we're used to. Those are patients that we kind of want to look back at their past culture results, look back at what they've grown, and then consider adding our anti-pseudomonal coverage. So the ceftaz, the cefepime, the mirum, piperacillin, zosin. Where it gets kind of iffy is you definitely want to make sure, like some of our patients that have a lot of line infections, whether or not we need MRSA coverage, fungal coverage, what types of bugs they've grown in the past. Those are all important things to consider as to what you should add on to your anti-pseudomonal coverage. But for us, one thing that I found is setting up our triage criteria so that we can identify those patients from the get-go helps then streamline the process of what antibiotics we should be selecting from there on out. Now, the guidelines do recommend that for our patients that have this immunocompromise and are at high risk for multidrug-resistant organisms or pathogens, we do use multi-drug therapy when we're thinking more of the lines of septic shock or organ dysfunction. So just taking into account, again, like we spoke about your antibiogram and what works for you, do you really need multi-drug therapy for these patients or are you seeing you know, your therapy treated without having synergy or without double coverage? Those are all good things to consider when we cross paths with these patients. So let's switch gears a little bit um, and talk about some operational issues because one of the things I always say is it doesn't matter how what kind of protocol you have. If you can't get the vancomycin to the patient, it doesn't matter what the levels are. Rachel and Kyle, can you tell us a little bit about how your health systems have worked on ensuring appropriate care for children with sepsis at all hospitals? Sure. So I'm going to start with that. I work in the largest health system in New Jersey, RWJ Barnabas Health, and I work in a fairly large hospital within that system, but we've really been working together um, as a health system to try and make sure things are the same 
even for our smaller hospitals. So um, Kyle touched on this earlier, and as many pharmacists are already aware, when choosing between your vasopressors in an emergency situation, availability of a commercially available product can be super helpful. Dopamine, as he mentioned, uh, has been available in a pre-made bag for many years, but that's not the same for norepinephrine and epinephrine. Although I will say that uh, some of the 503B facilities have been able to supply some hospitals with some compounded products. For example, we have a norepinephrine currently at my hospital from a 503B. While we've already established that dopamine is not the first-line presser, sometimes, again, as Kyle says, the easiest and fastest product, so uh, physicians may choose it to hang on it, uh, hang on patients while the norepi or epinephrine are being compounded. Then adding to this in the pediatric world, we have the added need for a syringe in our smaller patients. And so compounding in a syringe is also a challenge, particularly for those smaller hospitals who, again, may not be used to this and may not see many pediatric patients. So we've we've been tackling that currently in our health system. Um, Sometimes, again, the easiest thing may be to just hang that dopamine bag while the pharmacy compounds the desired presser in a syringe because sometimes for a nurse who may not have seen even seen a pediatric patient in, in shock or in sepsis in a couple of years, the idea of compounding one of these medications in a syringe may just be really um, too much for that situation. So sometimes we suggest just hanging the bag that you have available and, and you know, letting the pharmacy compound it. And, but we also then have to make sure that that pharmacy at that hospital is comfortable and has compounding instructions in their IV room so that they know how to compound the medication. And then the other piece of that is syringe pumps. Their availability is another issue that we've been tackling. So we started by requiring that all of our hospitals carry at least one or two smart syringe pumps in their emergency departments. So we did that, and then we standardized our concentrations of our IV medications across our system. So that's that was our step two. And right now, we're working on standardizing our syringe pump library between the hospitals with a goal of eventually sharing one library across the system with wireless pumps. Um, and that way, again, these smaller hospitals really don't have to take on the burden of building these very complicated syringe pump libraries. And our ultimate goal is that a sick child entering any of our facilities will receive that same quality of care. Even if a hospital is just stabilizing a patient to transfer to one of our children's hospitals, we wanted to make sure that that process was going to be smooth and most of all safe. Yeah, and then the availability of antibiotics. So there's always the question of, you know, who's going to be responsible ultimately for getting those antibiotics. As a pharmacist, I would I like to say that I'm responsible for the person for getting the antibiotics to the patient. However, as I was noting earlier, there might be some um, instances where it might be uh, better and quicker for the nurse to maybe administer or grab an antibiotic that's already been compounded and then choose the appropriate size bag. So, like if I was just to give an example, a Cephalic bean bag that's 500 milligrams, one gram, 1.5 grams, two grams. Um, and then they choose that uh, bag based off the appropriate size that's already in the refrigerator. I could see that being utilized, especially in like some rural hospitals where it's just easier to dose based on kind of a, a, a weight range rather than kind of compound specifically to the patient's weight because that can take some time if they're not familiar with the different concentrations that we might use to run those antibiotics. And as uh, Rachel was mentioning earlier, if it's not programmed into the pump already um, at some of these smaller institutions, there might be a delay just from the standpoint of how do I actually administer the drug. 
Some other options that you can use, obviously I kind of outlined the code sepsis, so that still puts the burden of getting the antibiotic to the pharmacy, uh, on the pharmacy. But like I said, there are some antibiotics that come in a uh, vial or as a pop together. So those are the times, especially if you're taking care of a pediatric patient and an adult institution, they might not be thinking of the concentrations that we use for pediatrics. And so they might default to what they're familiar with and use the adult concentrations or pop together bags that they're familiar with. So in those situations, again, you're going to have to work within the pharmacy department as well as like the different departments that might be taking care of these patients, primarily your ICU and your emergency department, of what do you think would be best for your nursing staff, physician staff, and the pharmacy staff. If everybody's comfortable with using pop-togethers and that's what your nurses are familiar with the most, by all means, set your program up to run off of that. Um, If it's not something that you feel comfortable with, for example, at a pediatric standalone hospital, the idea of pop-togethers are just not something that we see. Um, I really enjoy the pop-togethers, <laughs> really the <laughs> but we just don't have those. Yeah. Um, again, it just really comes down to what is your um, institution familiar with and what does each of your departments feel comfortable with. For us, we have always made it our policy that we deliver all drugs to nurses with the appropriate amount of drug needed to deliver the dose. So we never hand them anything that they need to manipulate after the fact. There's always going to be a little, some caveats to that, but I would say 99.9% of the time we're delivering the drug with the exact dose into it. So again, that's our expectation, but that might not be the expectation at some of these other institutions that might be taking care of pediatric patients in the rural setting or at like a big academic institution where they primarily see adults. Thanks, thanks, guys. So for many years, we've used normal saline for the food of choice for both of the emergency department setting. Pediatric surviving sepsis guidelines suggest that this might not be the best choice. Kim, Kyle, and Morgan, can you discuss that and explain any challenges that this may pose for us as pharmacists? Sure. Um, I'll go first. Um, this is Kim. So previous 2012 guidelines recommend crystalloid therapy that include isotonic saline boluses. Um, So many of us older pharmacists are really familiar with always using saline boluses, but more recent guidelines recommend first-hour fluid resuscitation. Really, over the process of my career, the specific choice of crystalloid has historically been debated. Um, Back in 2017, there were really two large cohort studies in pediatric patients that looked at balanced fluids, such as lactated ringers, or unbalanced fluids, such as normal saline. And I found that LR, so I'll refer to it as LR from now on, was associated with improved survival, even though that same year there was another study that reported that LR was not associated with improved outcomes in pediatric patients with sepsis. So for pediatric patients with sepsis, the literature had pointed to traditional use of crystalloids supporting the use of LR or normal saline with judicious use of albumin. But since then, over the process of the last 10 to 15 years, really the use of LR has significantly increased. So earlier guidelines did not really focus on balanced versus unbalanced. So these new guidelines did, and they focused really more on setting as well. So they stated that balanced and buffered crystalloids, such as LR and plasmolite, both of which are bases, are preferred over normal saline for initial resuscitation in children with septic shock or other sepsis-associated organ dysfunction. Now, this was weak recommendation with low evidence, 
but there's increasing evidence from observational studies and randomized controlled trials in adults, like the SMART and the SALTED studies, which compared plasmolite and lactated ringers to normal saline. And they really showed that resuscitation with crystalloid fluids containing high chloride concentrations, such as, such as what's in normal saline, was associated with hyperchloremic acidosis, systemic inflammation, AKI, coagulopathy, and mortality when compared with resuscitation with more balanced and buffered crystalloids, such as LR and plasmolite. Some more recent pediatric studies did show that the use of these balanced and buffered crystalloids were associated with lower mortality. So taken together, all this data supported the thought that these crystalloids outweigh any undesirable consequences that we're going to talk about, such as availability and cost and compatibility, especially in patients who require large volumes of fluid resuscitation. So we said that the guidelines suggested balanced and buffered crystalloids over normal saline, but then interestingly, they further went to differentiate health systems with intensive care and they said that if your health system had intensive care, that it was recommended to administer a bolus fluid titrated to clinical markers and discontinued if signs of fluid overload develop. But in healthcare systems with no availability of intensive care, if you had a pediatric patient that did not have hypotension, they recommended against bolus administration. But then if you were, did not have intensive care unit in your healthcare system, if your pediatric patient did have hypotension, then they did suggest doing a fluid bolus. The guidelines recommend against using starches and gelatins in the acute resuscitation. And in my institution at Children's of Alabama, we have not traditionally used starches or gelatins, but they do also recommend to use crystalloids rather than albumin and even though there's not much of a difference in outcomes, depending on what studies you look at, the recommendation takes into consideration costs and other barriers of administering albumin as compared to crystalloids. And again, in our pediatric ICU, we do not use a significant amount of albumin for these types of patients. But since the guidelines focus more on Pedialyte and LR, I have a few pros and cons that I'm going to introduce before Kyle and Morgan take over with their practice issues and some important information. But both, let's remember that both plasmolite and LR have sodium, chloride, and potassium, but only LR has calcium. And so this creates some compatibility problems that Kyle's going to touch on. And then plasmolite has added magnesium, gluconate, and acetate. And even though plasmolite contains no dextrose, you can actually, um, if you choose to use LR, you can actually order it to contain dextrose. We occasionally do that. And then lastly, in terms of cost, plasmolite is slightly more than lactated ringers, but we know they're both more expensive than normal saline, but there can be availability issues. And so some issue, institutions have had issues procuring plasmolite. So, for example, at Children's of Alabama, where I practice, we're currently out of plasmolite. And when we do have it, we actually preserve it for patients on cardioplegia because we do a lot of cardiovascular surgery and we might use it if LR is not available, which is usually not much of a problem. But Kyle is here to address more on the availability and compatibility issues. So I'll defer to him. <laughs> Thanks, Kim. 
So, like Kim was saying, the issues surrounding kind of um, the availability of these agents kind of um, ebb and flow just based on currently what's going on. So, a lot of the times you run into issues, especially with plasmalite or isolite. Those are some of the agents that we consistently are having issues kind of acquiring on a regular basis. So, we've, um, at least at Cardinal Glennon, we've kind of transitioned to if using more of the lactate and rigors, especially in the ICU setting. We've really kind of taken the recommendations in the new surviving sepsis update and kind of run with it. So we're really trying to get more of the lactated ringers on our patients that come in with sepsis as, uh, as their maintenance load as well as their initial resuscitation efforts. Issues with lactated ringers, um, that kind of comes up, as Kim mentioned, content. So um, lactated ringers does have the calcium, which is great, but um, is a downside when we're talking about compatibility issues. As most of you listening are probably pharmacists. You're aware that calcium does not like to play well with others when it's being run in line with other agents. One of the main issues that we run into, especially at our, at our facility, is the co-administration of ceftriaxone and lactated ringers. Ceftriaxone does not play well with uh, any form of calcium and tends to want to create a precipitate when you try to infuse those two agents together. Morgan, who works in our emergency department, she's come up with a couple of simple solutions that other institutions might be able to employ to kind of overcome some of these logistical and practical issues. But in terms of availability, that's just, that's going to ebb and flow, like I said earlier. Lactate rigors tends to be something that we're able to easily acquire right now with plasmalite, isolite being a little bit harder to acquire. And again, it is a little bit more expensive, as Kim pointed out. The last I checked, a bag of normal saline costs anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar. The lactated ringers is like a dollar to two dollars, and plasmalite somewhere between six and eight dollars a liter. So there is a fair amount of cost difference between those two, which is always going to be a challenge when you're talking about using something that is six, five times more expensive than your traditional normal saline. But again, if we have evidence suggests that our patients do better in the long term, that's always something that you can bring to the table and say, yes, it might cost more, but you're providing a better patient care and experience. So with that, I'll let Morgan kind of talk about some of the issues we've employed or some of the solutions we've employed uh, to co overcome some of these logistical and practical issues. The biggest solution that we're trying to create right now is potentially switching our ceftriaxone to be, so currently it's a 30-minute infusion and we're trying to switch that to be IV push. And the reason for that is currently in the ER, our practice in order to meet our sepsis bundle, which would be getting the fluids and the antibiotic in within the hour, is the nurse is starting the normal saline infusion and then Y-siding in the antibiotic so that both are infusing into the patient and reach that one-hour bundle. Of course, given the compatibility concerns, when we switch our fluid bolus to BLR, Y-siding in our antibiotic is no longer going to be an option. And let alone having it infused, so stopping the fluid bolus, having it infused for 30 minutes is not an ideal situation. So for us, we're looking more at trying to create epic MAR alerts for, patient, for the nurses to know, like, hey, LR contains calcium. Calcium-containing fluid should never be infused simultaneously with ceftriaxone, in addition to some sort of educational process that we're going to put out. And then, of course, reprogramming our pumps to allow the nurse to infuse the ceftriaxone for one dose as sepsis over five to ten minutes. 
And we're going to trial that and see how it works out. And hopefully this will fill a lot enough time for our bundle to be met within the ER. Morgan, let's shift a little bit when it comes to managing pediatric septic pediatric patients. Can you discuss with us the importance of using biomarkers in sepsis and how they can help guide drug therapy? Sure. I'll start with procalcitonin. So we know procalcitonin can be elevated when specifically a bacterial infectious process is present. So your lab may run different levels, but from what I've seen, it sounds like typically levels less than 0.5 nanograms per mil are known to be more inflammation, maybe not sepsis, versus levels that are higher, greater than 2 nanograms per mil, are typically associated with sepsis. So once an initial procalcitonin value has been obtained, similarly to our C-reactive protein, you really should try to trend those. And the thought is with appropriate antibiotic therapy, aka treatment of that infectious process, we should over time start to, start to see that value downtrending, which leads us to believe we are on the correct path for the patient. Now, newer literature has also postulated that procalcitonin could also be a marker to allow us to identify when we should discontinue antibiotics, specifically looking at the PICU patients. I will say right now at Cardinal Glennon specifically, we kind of stopped routinely obtaining our procalcitonin for our sepsis patients. Um, it had a higher cost, and we unfortunately had variable practices going from the ED to the PICU. So it wasn't being ordered appropriately or trended appropriately, which wasn't allowing us to justify the cost of ordering it for our patients. But I do know there are other institutions that are able to use it successfully and it's used as a marker to hopefully show successful antibiotic treatment. The next biomarker that we have to discuss is so with lactate. So lactate is now included as step number four in that initial sepsis bundle in terms that it should be ob obtained. This recommendation is not necessarily used to stratify our PEDS patients into high versus low risk, but it's a better guide for resuscitation efforts and it can be an indirect marker of our tissue hypoperfusion. So in pediatrics, it appears that lactate levels over four millimole per liter are often associated with mortality, but the direct definition of hyperlactinemia still remains unclear. However, we do know that the normalization of the lactate level within two to four hours of presentation in children was associated with a decreased risk of persistent organ dysfunction. So in summary, lactate is one of those levels that we want to get and we also want to repeat it to trend for our patients. So if it remains elevated upon our repeat level, that could indicate that we have incomplete hemodynamic resuscitation going on. So our efforts should really be placed on restoring stability for the patient. So whether that means increasing fluid boluses, starting the initiation of vasopressors, that's kind of where we're looking at using lactate. But it's important to also dictate that it shouldn't be used alone, and always used in combination with a comprehensive assessment of the clinical status and perfusion of the patient outside of just that one value. And I think Kim has, knows a little bit more about like endotypes and interleukins that she was going to speak on. Yeah, absolutely. At Children's of Alabama, we do uh, do trend lactate and procalcitonin, just as you had spoken about. But there are other biomarkers that have been studied, and these primarily include interleukins 6, 8, and 18. 
And these pro-inflammatory cytokines are particularly useful along with other biomarkers. So there are really limited studies on the utility in pediatric patients, but IL-6 and 8 levels have been reported to be higher in pediatric patients with sepsis. And interestingly, IL-8 levels of like less than or equal to 220 picograms per ml were 95% likely to predict survival of patients with septic shock. So while there's limited data available on the utility of IL-18 as a prognostic indicator for sepsis in adult patients, um, unfortunately, there's actually no data on the use of IL-18 for now, but maybe in the future there will be. There's also um, adrenomedulin or ADM and its precursor, and that's a peptide that's produced during times of stress, which may also prove to be a biomarker in septic patients. And there actually was a study that revealed serum levels of ADM were increased in pediatric patients with sepsis and had a positive correlation with severity of illness. Now, as you mentioned, there are some endotypes that you can look at, and they are specific gene expression patterns as a biomarker in pediatric patients with sepsis and acute respiratory syndrome. And this newer biomarker was originally linked to differing ventilator management in critically ill adults. So experts decided to research some prognostic value in pediatric patients. So one study group did show that pediatric patients with endotype A had a higher PRISMA-3 score versus patients with endotype B. At Children's of Alabama, we're actually not currently uh, measuring IL levels, ADM, um, or these endotype A versus B. And of course, we know that further research is needed to know the utility of this potential new biomarker. And actually, m several of these biomarkers are not even mentioned in the recent um, surviving se sepsis campaign. So let's wrap up our talk about pediatric sepsis. Kim, can you go over with us some of the potential new therapies and what these look like? Sure. So the two that we chose to talk about are actually, there's not a lot of data in pediatric patients, unfortunately. So, <laughs> that never like, happens. Like usual, right? <laughs> no. In adult patients with sepsis, vitamin D deficiencies have been associated with poor health outcomes. And so the use of vitamin D has been evaluated for many disease states, including sepsis in adults and pediatric patients, which is why we wanted to include it. Critically ill adults, there's a proven association between low vitamin D levels and higher illness severity scores, mortality, length of stay, and other poor outcomes. And so in pediatric patients, there is one meta-analysis that revealed a high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency, which was defined as less than 50 nanomoles per liter at the time of ICU admission. And it was associated with higher illness severity, mortality, as well as organ dysfunction. So there are studies that exist that support the use of vitamin D supplementation in adult patients with sepsis using oral cholecalciferol. And so this research does suggest that supplementation in this dosage range is safe um, and that the most appropriate vitamin D level to maintain improved patient outcomes, though, unfortunately, has yet to be determined. So like usual, <laughs> while there's little evidence on the preferred range to maintain in patients with sepsis and which level is sufficient, there is at least one study that showed that adult patients um, with levels of less than 25 nanomoles were associated with higher illness severity and mortality. So there is some controversy on which metabolites should be measured in these patients since there are 40 known metabolites. 
But in terms of supplementation, there were also many unanswered questions on the exact dose to supplement the preferred route and how to give the vitamin D, particularly in pediatric patients. The new guidelines do actually suggest against acute repletion of vitamin D deficiency for treatment of septic shock and other sepsis-associated organ dysfunction. That's really with a weak recommendation and a very low quality of evidence. I know that in our pediatric ICU, we notice low vitamin D levels. We do supplement them to try to achieve um, normal levels. And then vitamin C has been on the minds of many because there is emerging data in adults with sepsis. Unfortunately, at this time, there is no evidence to support the use of vitamin C in pediatric patients. Um, And the guidelines actually do suggest, again, against the use of vitamin C in the treatment of children with septic shock or other sepsis-associated organ dysfunction. So I'm not sure about my other colleagues on the call if they're using vitamin D and C, but as I mentioned, we're, we use vitamin D in some patients with low levels of vitamin D, but we're not routinely using vitamin C um, for supplementation in these particular patients. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Kim, Morgan, Kyle, and Rachel for joining us to discuss sepsis in pediatric patients. Join us here every Thursday where we talk with ACHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical, clinical topics. I'm Vicki Besseligat, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.